in the struggle for the divine yes and the saying no, how is one also to respond to those who preach the gospel of deterrency, which is basically an understanding that power must be balanced with power and that force must be met with equal force and that there is a history of institutions balancing this power and maintaining a certain level of peaceful coexistence. Mm -hmm. My question is, <laughs> I almost forgot my question. My question is, do you imply in your teaching that the struggle of the individual to become God in some way ignores the political reality that in some cases deterrency has in fact been successful. Has in fact been successful. Mm -hmm. In some cases. Um, let me just start by, by um, saying simply, and I don't really sort of have an answer uh, in the sense of that, that what I was just saying this morning um, doesn't obviously make a lot of political sense for many people. Um, the um, American bishops who have been together last week to discuss a statement on peacemaking, which has not yet been finalized, this discussion, have gone through an enormous amount of agony around that issue. Where are you? Could you put your hand up? I know. Okay. Uh, a, a lot of agony. And the attitude of the Catholic Church over the last 10 years is evolving around those problems uh, very rapidly. Uh, Brian Hare, who is the advisor of the American Catholic Bishop Conference on Peace Issues, was still saying that the use of nuclear weapons is definitely immoral but having them is not. You can see what a strange construction that is because having them obviously doesn't mean anything if using them is a moral impossibility. Nevertheless, um, this was said with also a very much of a pastoral concern for thousands of Americans and Russians and Christians of the world who in some way or another are involved in this very complex defense system. Uh, recently in one of his statements said, well, um, having nuclear weapons can only be considered acceptable to the degree that the balance of power 
would be the starting point for mutual disarmament. That, in other words, they went one step further and say, having them is only, can only be seen as the way to, uh, to um, uh, disarmament, as the basis for the necessary disarmament um, uh, 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 talks. Okay. I'm just saying that just to give you a little idea of the sort of the most formal statements that having been made around this. Um, and uh, also now uh, there has become a new place for uh, resistance, even officially. I mean, uh, for a long time, uh, I'm just speaking about the Catholic Church for a second, simply because there has been so many changes there. For a long time, being a conscientious objector was sort of unthinkable for a Catholic. And now, since Vatican II, there has been an explicit sympathy expressed for those who in their consciousness can no longer participate in war. And uh, so there is a place for that. And now also later, uh, much more positive voices are heard um, towards resistance against nuclear arms race. Uh, so what I'm saying is there is a movement happening towards a new understanding of uh, peacemaking. And it's right, what you're saying is um, uh, the, the, the balance of power, in a way, has been always considered sort of a way to keep, keep it from blowing up. I mean, that has been sort of theoretically the case. Nobody ever could test that out. Nobody could say, we are not being attacked by the enemy because we have as many weapons as they have, or, um, um, you know, that are just they are mental constructions. Uh, you know, while we pile up those things, um, is it really true that the Russians are ready to attack or that the Americans are ready to attack, whatever? I mean, all of that, there's a lot of mental games going on in terms of what the other wants to do um, and, and a growing amount of suspicion. The, the issue that um, um, slowly on is emerging, however, is that the, 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 the balance of power thinking um, has, in fact, also developed into a new strategy because the deterrence strategy of, like, we should deter each other from fighting by having more and more weapons to fight, which is, you know, um, is now also officially abandoned, even by the United States, thinking that first strike capability is really what's more important, that you can only win a war if you start one, practically. Because if you have to be retaliatory, um, then, um, then um, you know, uh, you're too late. You're already gone before you can do anything. Um, I personally feel that um, the madness that we are involved and the madness is something like this, that millions of American people, good people, good parents, all the way to the presidents and the senators and the people who work in electric boat, I mean, there's nobody evil there. I mean, as such, evil. I just, you just could be all people who want peace in some way. But that, that the madness is that we all have come to, to slowly on um, 
be so pervaded with the powers of war and fear that our whole economy and even our whole society and even our whole way of thinking and living is somewhat done within the context of this nuclear threat. And it's that affecting our teaching, our schools, our children, our thinking about the future, and slowly on it becomes more and more pervasive. And that somehow that cycle has to be broken. And, um, and I, I, uh, I know very well that, um, that I or nobody of you of I can sort of do that, sort of, in a, but somehow can we start uh, thinking together and living together in a way that maybe that place of disarmament can open up. Okay, could you, uh, would you come back? I mean, I'm just being responding, but I'm not sure if I've been answering. I mean, it's... it's Thank you. <laughs> well, you have to be sure, because it's not an answer, I realize, it's just a reflection. The, and it, the struggle I have is not with your theology, it's with the political reality I have to live in, too. Yeah. Which is, um, I don't even have a problem with the anger that's directed at me because um, I embrace life. Because I, I think even that can be used creatively. Yeah. And I speak as a priest. I'm a priest. Yeah. So uh, my problem is with the political realities around me that are always attempting to draw me in to fear mm -hmm. and, and seduce me into believing that whatever is done is done in the name of peace, whether it be the aggrandizement of the arms or the technological sophistication of the weapons and upgrading them and continuing a, some kind of technological balance. Uh, all of these things contribute to seducing me into believing that I'm safe. Yeah. But what I see is I'm not safe. In fact, I'm more in danger. How do I respond to that as a Christian if I'm... Uh, do, do I ultimately say... Well, heaven is on my side. And when I go, when the bombs drop, just let me be in the Ronte's position, you know? Uh, well, uh, the answer, no, that's not the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, no, no, I, I think, that, see, see, there is some craziness about it, but it's very important to say it. It is indeed important to continually to ask, what does it mean today when Jesus says, he who loses his life will gain it? And if our only concern is to gain our life, we will lose it. And that's what's happening. We're all wanting to survive. But there is a kind of a panic concern about survival that means our spiritual, mental, and emotional, and human death. If I stand in the presence of God and say, I'm alive, and I killed about 50 million Russians in order to be alive, then I'm not alive. I'm dead, totally dead. And somehow I have to complain, continue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ which says that, that uh, the, physical in, uh, the physical survival is not our last concern. That is not our concern. 
strangely enough. I mean, it's not what the gospel considered. Jesus never considered his survival the issue. The opposite, he, he said, if I have to give my life for life, I will do so. The whole doctrine of the cross is didn't have the Christ to die in order to enter his glory this way. And, and I think we have to believe deeply in our heart that, that the life of God is stronger than death. The love of God is stronger than It's only on that basis that we can live together. And if our only concern is how do I end up on the wrong side of the wall when the bomb falls, I mean, that is, that is in a way an act of faithlessness. Uh, thinking, that's not faithful thinking. Faithful thinking is if the Lord uh, takes my life or wants me to surrender my life, I know that that life that I'm giving will be gained in a whole new way. And I cannot exactly say how or what and where. Not just speaking about it will be all fine in heaven and to reward it. I'm speaking about a deeper kind of belief that the promise of God as a God of life is a promise that we built our whole existence of. And that, uh, to the, and that we have to continue to, to, to hold on to that promise even in the face of nuclear threat. See, because sometimes we say, well, we hold on to the promise in the small, small wars, but in the big wars we don't. No, but the, the agony of the world is the agony that Christ has suffered. And we should very much realize, well, come to that a little later, that, that what happened on the cross, what happened on the cross, we only now start not only now, we, we more and more start seeing the suffering of humanity that we are involved in is the suffering that God has taken on on the cross. And as we see the agony of the, of the world developing over the centuries, we really start discovering what indeed has happened when God died for us. And it's on that basis that he, he died for this same world that we are in, that we can dare to give up our life. And I think the Christian community and the Christian mutual support is not re, uh, consoling each other and saying, well, you know, if we have sort of spiritual or physical fallout shelters because we might make it when the bomb falls. I mean, that's not even interesting if we will make it. Interesting is we are faithful. But I'm asking the question, are you implying that we surrender our political no. uh, involvement. No, the opposite. The I am, I'm, see, it's very, uh, what I'm implying is that we are politically involved and are really doing any possible thing to, to change, for instance, uh, the disarmament, physical disarmament, conference, Geneva, uh, SALT, whatever, uh, whatever, that we, are, that we are involved in that, but involved in the way of faithful people and, and not in I think the worst thing we can do is go to the mountaintop and say the world is terrible and we don't have anything to do with that we are God's people and uh, we are going to just be of God and let the world fall apart that's anti-incarnational that is against the truth that God became flesh and he became one of us and that we have to love one another very concretely we have to love the Russians we have to love the Americans we have to love concretely people and people are people and we have to do any possible thing to make that peace of God visible in the world. People live together, children, adults, families, nations, groups. We have to be involved. But we have to be involved in it with the strength that comes from, from a source that is not of this world. I mean, that's kind of paradox. I don't know. Just as a closing thing, I'd like to tell you, share experience with you. Uh, 
Once I was listening to a confession of a Vietnam veteran, and he told me that he had killed over 100 people, and that killing got so easy that one day in a firefight, he just decided he was going to kill his company commander. So he shot him in the back and killed him. And then that young man looked up at me, and he had tears in his eyes, and he was smiling at the same time, and he said, I have become Satan for my country. I have become Satan for my country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just a militia. Now that is the seduction. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to hear you deal more with that seductiveness. I will. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, please. I was feeling a, a good deal of despair and confusion about the issue of um, saying no without getting sucked into the same hatred that you're trying to resist when you were reading the description of the massacre. Um, it's very easy for me to love the victim. I don't yet understand in my heart, although I, I have read of witnesses like Corey Tenboom's sister in the concentration camp, who have managed to, to actively, not just intellectually, but actively love their enemies. Could you address for me how, how a Christian actively, in the face of it, is able to show uh, love yeah. to one's enemies? Um, just, I, I cannot, but I will give you little stories, um, because they're really coming. While you're talking, I just got a little story. My grandmother uh, lived with my family in Holland while doing the German occupation. And the SS soldiers all the way came, came to the door to look for my father, who was hidden behind the windowsill on the second floor. And we were telling him to be very quiet, because every time the Germans could come in and take him out and send him to the things. And uh, so we are really full of hatred for those people who were trying to get my father. And my grandmother, who lived close to the German border, but happened to be with us because her house was destroyed, uh, lived with us. And she was a very wonderful person. She was uh, in her 70s then, 60s, 65, 70. And the German big military guys came to our door. And um, my God, everybody panicking, they have helmets and so on. And my, my mother, my grandmother, speaks a little German, because she's on the German border and stuff. And said, oh, you know, why don't you come in the kitchen? I have a cup of coffee for you. Because you must have been really hungry working so hard all day. <laughs> 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 and he was 18 years old, and this, my grandmother saw an 18-year-old grandchild in front of her. And she saw this... Uh, unbearded little face under the big helmet and big, so this guy was totally inappropriate. I mean, he was the older, but he was just a little boy. And she saw this, she saw this, this young child who was become part of this huge army and, um, and, and suddenly was victimized by the enormous force, the demonic force, that he himself was not a demon. He was just, uh, uh, and, and, and I thought about it. Another example that comes to my mind is Timmermans. Some of you might have read that book about Timmermans, about Argentina, presentation. Timmermans was a very well-known uh, journalist in uh, Buenos Aires. And uh, he was tortured terribly by uh, the Argentina police. 
but the torture had become so institutionalized that they tortured people from 8 in the morning to 5 in the afternoon or uh, at night, at 8 at night, from 7 at night to 5 in the morning or something, without, um, without even realizing, um, you know, the kind of inhumanity they were involved. Because after a torture session, and you know how they are uh, from subscriptions, the torturer sort of sat down, give a cigarette to the guy who was torturing and said, listen, you have some relations in the published publican world. My son is looking for a job. Do you know how, how I could get a job for him? And, and suddenly, Timmerman was realizing that, that this man was totally part of a system that was totally beyond him and had sort of lost his soul in it. Uh, all of that is simply to say that, that it remains of great importance for us to continuously realize uh, that, um, you know, that the people who are doing those things, like even the soldiers in Guatemala, are really uh, like we are. And um, in many ways victimized by the same powers. And I think that is an important realization that can be lifted up in prayer, can be lifted up in discussion, can be lifted up and, and can be sort of the beginning of, of at least some peacemaking on that level in our heart. Do you want to say more? There, there are moments when I listen to you where it almost sounds very Pollyanna-ish, where, where to me, uh, I guess the struggle is to see the whole person in that soldier. I mean, to see, uh, uh, for example, your grandmother seeing a young Nazi soldier, and, and she was beautifully yeah. able to suddenly focus in on that's an 18-year-old boy who needs a cup of coffee. Yeah. Uh, part of me says, isn't that wonderful? And part of me says, yeah, but she's ignoring the other part of who that person is. Yeah. I mean, he is an 18-year-old boy who needs a cup of coffee and. Sure. And, in that in, and I think that to, to be Christians in the world, we are forced to complete the and for it to be valid. I mean, if we all go around... No. Encountering okay. that kind yeah. of evil and saying, well, there's just a, a 33-year-old no. overgrown child. No. No. I, I, I just wanted to, to, to give a beginning to that. Another, another response, which is a little more deeper, and which I, I, I really need some more time for really to think about it, but it, it happened, is um, that's just a spiritual response that is in line with this, but it is, it, it, it is somehow essential. And is, it is, and maybe it doesn't make much sense to you, but, it, but somehow um, real compassion, which means to suffer with, okay? To suffer with, that's what the word compassion means. Pati cum, suffer with. In a spiritual sense, means that we connect our lives with the suffering of God. That's really what compassion in the most profound sense means. That God came to suffer. That the whole story of our revelation, that God came to suffer, that he's a suffering God, which is a contradiction in terms in a way, but that's the mystery that we're involved in. And that compassion, like St. Francis had, is not simply feeling good about individual people, and that's what my grandmother, that was the story, but basically it means to see all human suffering connected with the suffering of God. That's really what it in the deepest sense means. At every suffering that would make me angry, confused, upset, hostile, and so forth, is a suffering 
that is not alien to God. The spiritual life, in a way, is meant to help me interiorize that, appropriate that truth. So I see killing, I see suffering, I see torture, I see pain. But what I really see is the suffering God. I mean, see in, in the kind of, with the eyes of faith, with the eyes of the spirit. I'm happy are those who see. What you see is God's suffering. And the mystery is that by seeing God's suffering, we also see that that suffering was a suffering to life. You cannot see God's suffering without seeing that it's suffering was a suffering for salvation, was a suffering to resurrection, was a suffering to new life, see? It's not a suffering that leads into a dead-end street. It's a suffering that has in its heart God's love, and therefore a love that is greater than death, so it keeps breaking out, breaking up the death that it lives out. And, um, and I think that, from a, that, that my grandmother's sympathy for this 18-year-old boy was a sort of a, a psychological translation <laughs> of a, a much more spiritual event that she had been involved in, because I know that that is, that, that she couldn't just see any human suffering without continuously seeing it in the light of, of her face. And, and that made her very realistic in one level, but made it somewhat difficult for her to even let, let destructive hostility to enter into her life. See? And so, okay, anyhow, that's, that's a, a other way of speaking about it, but maybe a little more valid. So what I'm thinking now is that the only way to actually confront that is not with my mind, because my mind would go crazy with that. Yes, with the mind it of Christ. It has to have the mind of Christ, or, yeah. or you'll break. And uh, see, now, <laughs> you say precisely what I didn't say, but that needs to be said, but it's very hard to say it so that it makes sense. But indeed, you know, have the mind of Jesus Christ, Paul said to the Philippians, who did not cling to his divinity, but emptied himself and became as we are. It is in that mind that we can start living in the world without being of it. But somehow because we don't cling to that power. Now, my question is, my question and also a question for ministry is, is not if this is true or not, because it's sort of true, it's in the scriptures. But how to let that truth descend from the head into the yes. heart? Yes. How to, 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 to let, the, let what I know is the mind become a reality of the heart? And that is, that's just formation, that's training, that's spiritual discipline and all of that. And we need each other badly for that. Set up schools of spiritual life. <laughs> yes. And the church it should be that school, uh, but in a way we... Many of the churches don't even know the treasures they have to work with. See? Would that be part of the Peace Institute that you were talking about? That I mean, a start, place where you, you could, where you could, cut, yes, you yeah. and I will start. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yes. See, I am thinking very <coughs> concretely about a, a network of peacemakers who are constantly willing to deal with those questions and dealing in their heart, which means really dying from the old self and living the new life. But you can do that just once. It's not just you do it once and now you're there. It's just an ongoing way of being and calling each other back to that place. Thank okay, you. thank you. Yes. Uh, Father, I was wondering, uh, just as a footnote to what she's saying and I'm listening to you, that if I see someone who is ill and has a broken arm, I may want to share my energies and my time 
to help them to get to the hospital. Yes. If a person objectively is ruthless spiritually and has this, perhaps as a Christian, if I have love, I may want to share that. Not only is there the physical illness, but there's also the spiritual. True. And therefore, maybe it makes it a little easier to reach out to that person and to give what one might have, that love mm -hmm. as a Christian, to a person who may not have it in that particular moment as someone coming down. That's the thought that I was thinking. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So this one thing that struck me about what you had spoken of earlier and to which this lady's wonderful question addressed itself. But in thinking of your grandmother seeing that soldier who to her was an 18-year-old, she insisted that there is a reality in which we have to say, yes, he is an 18-year-old. And it seems to me that great help is found in being able to acknowledge that I have to say that I am a 52-year-old nice guy and <laughs> a jerk. <laughs> and what he means to acknowledge that might find it more possible to obtain the mind of Christ to have compassion on that man who is this. So the last, I didn't hear the last sentence, but what means? My yeah. ability to say and to understand without being cute, but with being honest with myself that I am what I hope is nice and hope is good, but I am also this and that. My ability to live with that and confess that every day makes it possible then for me to have a head of the mind of Christ mm -hmm. so that I can love somebody else who is this and the other. Right. Just that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, you can affirm that. That's just, um, that's spiritual realism. You know, and, uh, and, and very important. There's nothing so bad as sentimentalism in, 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 in this. And, uh, um, and uh, yeah, well, I don't, I think you don't want an answer, do you? Just, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Could you speak a little louder? How do we make sure that our good deeds are not anxious attempts to promote our own cause? In other words, what I'm trying to say is that in the scriptures, Jesus talks about blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the uh, eternal life and this sort of thing. And people, people therefore say, okay, let's all be poor. Let's get rid of all our possessions and let's, let's be poor. And thereby, what they do is they set up a standard of good deeds that will thereby give us some sort of salvation. And in essence, I'm sort of drawing on the same idea of salvation by works. How do we make sure that what we are doing, the good works that we do, are not for our own pride and are not to, per, um, to make our own causes made manifest? In a way, in the, in a way the answer is very simple. You make sure of that by continuously submitting yourself to the confronting and uh, forgiving reality of the Christian community. In other words, you are there uh, to be always obedient to Christ. But obedient to Christ doesn't mean to Jesus simply who lived 2,000 years ago, it means a always obedience comes from the word listening. Oh, by dear, you know, our dear, listen, to be open. To be open to, to, to be part of a living body that, that 
is the body of Christ. And therefore, to say, <laughs> you don't have to sit down and continuously try to figure out if you have the motives right, because you never will find out. I mean, you, anything I do, I might talk to you all about Christ and basically do it for all the wrong reasons. I mean, in a way. But if I am willing to submit myself to the larger questions, to the larger community, then I think uh, I also uh, will continuously be asked to empty myself out again and again and again. See what I mean? So it, 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 is, it is not an individual act. Can you give an example of what would be... Um, Submitting oneself to the larger community. I mean, Paul speaks of what good is it? Uh, excuse me. He says that uh, if some people preach the gospel out of deceitful gain, yet still God is glorified because the message is being preached. Uh, what is it? What would be a concrete example of submitting oneself to the larger community? Well, it means, and I, I will talk about it in the in the presentation that comes. It means to, to constantly see my work or my prayer as part of the work of the body. I mean, that's, a whole, that's a whole big thing. I mean, I am not Christ, but we as a community are there to give visibility to his presence in this world. I am a part of a body and in that sense continuously responsible to that body. Uh, that has very concrete meaning for me as a priest because I, you know, there are very concrete things that I have to, you know, I can even go around and speak here if, if, if the church doesn't want me to do that. I mean, after all, I'm sent to preach. I'm, I'm, if I'm not sent here, this is just an ego trip. I love to do it and I might even get a lot out of it and there's all the wrong motivation, but I can hold on to the fact that what I'm saying, I'm saying not in my own name, but in the name of the church, in the name of Christ, in the name of the body. What I'm saying here is nothing that you had known yet. All the things I've said this morning, you, you had already heard before, but still, for the upbuilding of the body, I'm saying it in your name, which is the body of Christ, and also in the name of the church, it's a larger reality. See, so, uh, so that I can take some risks, because I know somewhere that if I really be faceless, somebody will pull me back. And, and, and in that sense, uh, now that means in family life and in the way we are part of the community and so forth. So. The reason I bring it up is because there <clears throat> is a tendency to have sort of an ingrown piety. That is, if I am afraid of being prideful in, say, standing on a street corner and uh, saying my loud, ostentatious prayers, um, then I don't say anything. I don't sit on a bus and read my Bible or or speak openly about my faith and this sort of thing. And the end result of this ingrown piety is no action at all. No. And so the things, uh, it's an issue that I often dealt with. Now, I think that's, that's very important. And uh, there's a lot of that sort of individual uh, self-enhancing self kind of thing going on. And we have to be very honest about it. Okay, let me, uh, I think it's about time for me to move. Uh, Yes? You want to say that? That meets the last question and then... Or you have to uh, let's go from the last talk. Yes, go ahead. I, I really would like to ask you, for some addressing of the tension in our personal realization that we as humans, as citizens of the world, as well as parts of the body of Christ, 
have never had a precedent such as the threat of nu a nuclear holocaust. On the other hand, we don't have much of a precedent in terms of our effectiveness as a preventative body. And in terms of being preventative, it, we can do our good deeds and try in our personal lives to affect a moral, responsible response to the world and our, our communities, and yet our little personal good deeds and moralities seem to be overwhelmed when you open a Time magazine and look at the destruction that's going on all around us. And how do we address as, as Christians, as a body of Christ, and as citizens of the world that tension between the overwhelming magnitude of the task that we have and our sense of being pioneers and pilgrims and doing much of anything about addressing it? No. Okay. Um, I'm going to present this lecture because I think 90% of the response is right in there. But I also, but just to you personally, I think you and I have to really unmask the illusion of the statistics. I mean, it's a very great temptation to keep saying, uh, well, I'm only me, or we are only us and the world is so big. I mean, the whole history of Christianity speaks about min creative minorities, about the 12 disciples, the small bunch of people, the few reformers, the people who... And if we believe in the power of God's love, the question is no longer if there are hundreds involved or two. Now, that sounds sort of a, a cop-out, but it isn't really meant to be. The, 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 I have seen in my own life the enormous transformation taking place that came from one or two people by the way they, they lived out faithfully their vocation. And it's very important that you and I find that vocation, that we are really discovering what is my particular role in life. You don't have to take on the problem of the world. Christ did that. But you have to find what particular vocation you have. What is, that might be a family, that might be work, that might be uh, living together in a certain way, but somehow the question always is, how can I discover and discern my particular task in my life as peacemaker? And trust that if I be faithful to that task, many things will happen, a lot of things that I don't even will ever witness. That's somehow that crazy confidence that, that, that a Christian is supposed to live with. Let me leave it by that, okay? And um, then uh, we'll talk about it. Maybe uh, you can come back afterwards if that's okay.